We are actually getting ready to start a series next week called Arguing with Jesus. And so next week we're gonna start a series called Arguing with Jesus. And the idea of that series is gonna be kind of who's in control, us or Jesus. And so hopefully you'll come back and as we kind of work our way through different passages of scripture where we see uh, Jesus and us vying for control of our bodies, of our time, and of our relationships. So that'll be starting next week. This week, I'm just gonna preach a very simple sermon on John chapter one. John chapter one uh, is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Um, it begins, of course, you are probably, or many of you are familiar with it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's this great you know, poetic passage by the apostle John. And we're gonna be jumping into the middle of that today. But before we do that, um, we're gonna have a little movie clip, and, and then I'm gonna pray, and then we'll begin. But today we're gonna be looking at a movie clip taken from a movie. It's one of my favorite movies called The Mission. So if you've never seen The Mission, sometimes I use movie clips and I go, I'm not recommending this, but, it's, but it gets the point across. Other times I recommend the movie because it's great. This movie I totally recommend. It's fantastic. It came out in 1986 and it stars a young Liam Neeson, Jeremy Irons, Aidan Quinn, and Robert De Niro. And the film is set in the 1740s and it involves a Jesuit priest named Father Gabriel who's played by Jeremy Irons. Uh, He enters the eastern Paraguayan jungle in order to tell uh, the story of Jesus to a remote tribe called the Guarani. The Guarani were not only not receptive to this uh, message of Christianity, the movie actually begins with a priest who they've tied to a wooden cross and sent over a giant waterfall. So it was a resounding no thanks to the Jesuits. Father Gabriel, however, is unwilling to give up on these people. And so he travels to the falls. He climbs to the very top of the falls. And uh, in the next scene in the movie, he sits in the jungle playing his oboe. And these Guarani warriors, captivated by the music, uh, come out of the jungle and sit around him. They allow him to live, and they eventually let him take a place in their tribe. While living with the tribe, Father Gabriel encounters a brutal mercenary and slave trader named Rodrigo Mendoza, who's played by Robert De Niro. He makes his living kidnapping the Guarani and then selling them into slavery. At a turning point in the movie, Father Gabriel actually has the chance to share the gospel with Mendoza, who then becomes a Christian and embarks on a new life with God. Uh, He ends up accompanying the Jesuits on their return journey to this people group, the Guarani, many of whom, of course, he has killed and stolen into slavery. And he decides to do penance. And so he loads up this giant uh, piece of baggage with his sword and his shield and his armor and all the tools of his slavery. And he carries it through the jungle and then up these falls to the Guarani people. And the scene that we're about ready to watch is when he finally reaches the top of the falls and meets the very people who he has tortured and enslaved. Let's take a moment and, and then we'll watch this clip about uh, the new life of Mendoza. Let me take a moment, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you again that though you could have left us in darkness, you pursued us. Uh, you came looking for us. You wooed us back to yourself through your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that we would turn to you today and uh, that we would follow you, that we would walk with you. Uh, we pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So the, it's, again, I recommend the movie. It's, it's fantastic. But what's interesting about the movie, it really, the, 
the first half or two-thirds of the movie is really character development around Robert De Niro's character where he's this, you know, this person that is a murderer and he's enslaved people. He's just been this terrible individual. And then he receives forgiveness and receives grace and he transitions from this old life of being a slaver and being a murderer to being to this new life of ultimately becoming a Jesuit priest. And so it follows his transition into his new life where he's following God, right? He goes from a slave trader to a missionary. He turns from a mercenary and a murderer to a pacifist and a priest. And today we're gonna be looking at John chapter one and another transition from an old life into a new life. If you'll follow along with me, we're gonna be beginning in verse 35 of John chapter one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. It's a little piece of first-person detail there. Many people think that the second disciple was the Apostle John, the person, person writing this gospel. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So what do we see in John chapter one, particularly in this little section of verses about the new life to which Jesus has called us? Well, I think first of all, one of the things that we see is that often our new life with God begins with an introduction. Often our new life begins with an introduction. Look at verses 35 and 36. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And actually, this is the second time that John the Baptist has pointed out Jesus to his own disciples. The first time was in verse 29 of chapter one, where we read, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is the second time. Here in verse 35, he introduces his two disciples to Jesus once again. Throughout the chapter of the first book of John, the apostle John has been introducing us to Jesus, right? That's the whole point of in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And that talks about Jesus being the word and the light. John calls him the son of God. And he says that through Jesus, all these things were made. John chapter one is this massive introduction of the apostle John to us. He's introducing us to Jesus. Here, however, John introduces us to Jesus through the words of John the Baptist who calls Jesus the lamb of God. This name for Jesus, the Lamb of God, harkens back to Exodus chapter 12, if you guys are familiar with the beginning of the Old Testament. And there we read about this Passover lamb. But it also echoes uh, of the sacrificial system of the Jews where these lambs were killed for the sins of the people. And likely this term, the Lamb of God, also refers back to Isaiah 53, uh, where we're told that he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, 
so he did not open his mouth. In other words, Jesus willingly came to be the Lamb of God, to take upon himself your sin, your iniquity, your failures, your insufficiencies, and to pay the price to make you clean and to make you beautiful before God. The reason this is important to you, this is the reason this is important uh, to Andrew and to John is because at some points in time, there are some of us in this room that surely feel like we can't come before God because we believe that he's angry with us. And here, Jesus, the Lamb of God, says, that's no longer true, right? If you trust in me as the Lamb of God, there's no more wrath for you. Jesus, God is no longer angry with you. Others of you in this room may feel like you can't come before God because you're aware of your sinfulness. Um, That term can mean any number of different things. It can mean missing the mark. It can mean stepping over the line. But because you're aware of your sinfulness, uh, you may think there's no way that in my sinfulness and in my uncleanliness that I can enter into the presence of a holy God. And again, Jesus, the Lamb of God, tells you that if you trust in him, that isn't true, right? that you're made right with him because of the sacrifice of his son. Some more of you in this room may feel unable to come before God because you just can't believe that God even likes you. The Lamb of God, however, tells you that not only does God like you, but he loves you. The new life of the Christian often begins with an introduction to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's jump back into verse 37. Verse 37 says this, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And so the second thing we see is that our new life often begins with a decision. So whenever we read about people following Jesus, their decision is almost always costly, right? So some of you guys know that personally. You have uh, been older when you've made this decision to follow Jesus and you realize that it's costly. Maybe you made the decision when you were young and you realize that it's cost you any number of different things as you've gotten older. Here, Andrew and John, uh, and presumably John, the author of this gospel, decide to leave their current rabbi, John the Baptist, in order to follow Jesus. And so there's a loss there. It costs them something. When Jesus calls the other disciples, they decide to drop their nets and their stable incomes, and they follow him. They make a decision that costs them. When Jesus calls Levi the tax collector to come and follow him, he gets up, leaves his tax station, and he follows Jesus, costing him a lucrative profession. The same thing goes for Zacchaeus. If you guys remember the story of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector. So he was even higher up sort of the administrative tree in the Roman government. And when he decides to follow Jesus, uh, he also says, I'll give four times the amount of money back to any of those people who I've cheated. His decision to follow Jesus was costly. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, that is sort of the Jewish Supreme Court. And he chooses to follow Jesus and his decision costs him his reputation. And frankly, the list goes on and on and on. Our new life with God always begins with a decision. And that decision is almost always costly. When Chris and I were living in Gainesville, Georgia, um, we met a man named Mohadiku, and Mohadiku was from Timbuktu. So Timbuktu is not an imaginary place. It's a real country. And it was interesting. It's a Muslim country. And uh, when we met him, he told us his story, and his story was really fascinating. He said, basically, he said, I used to make money. I ran with a gang of some other guys. We were all sort of in our upper teens, and we had one gun among us. And uh, what we would do is we would sort of just rob people, and that's the way that we would make money. 
And he said, once uh, I was out in the town square and there was an American missionary who was preaching in the middle of this town. And he said, uh, you know, I stood out there and kind of with my buddies and we kind of listened to him sort of, you know, talk and give his spiel or whatever. But he said, I was just frankly angry that he was there telling us about this person named Jesus. And not only that, I just saw this as an opportunity to steal from a rich white person, a rich American. And so he said, uh, after he finished, um, the, the missionary finished talking, he said, Mohadiku said, I followed him. And so he said, I was sort of waited you know, in the shadows and followed him to where he was staying. And then when I made sure he was alone, I broke into his home that night. And he said, when I broke into his home, I had the gun. And I, you know, I started yelling at him to give me his money, give me everything he had. And so this missionary, he said to his surprise, was rather calm and wasn't terrified, which is, of course, what I would have been, and gladly gave him uh, the money that was in his wallet. And then Mohadiku said, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill you. And, uh, and again, the missionary just started talking to him and started talking to him about this forgiveness that can be found in Jesus. And so Mohadiku said, as I stood there in this man's apartment in the middle of the night with a gun pointed at him, he said, slowly but surely the gun, I dropped the gun and I began to weep because of the forgiveness that this man was offering me in Jesus. And so he said, at that moment, I decided to give my life to Jesus and to follow him. And what was interesting is what I remember about the story is how costly it was for him in a Muslim country. He said, I went back home and uh, when I told my parents that I had decided to follow Jesus, he said, they were furious with me. And he said, I was no longer allowed to eat at the dinner table and, and the dinner table uh, in Timbuk- Timbuktu was basically everyone would, would sit around a communal bowl and eat out of this communal bowl together. And he said, my father wouldn't let me sit at the communal bowl. He made me sit on the ground and eat out of the dog's bowl. And so it was massively costly for him to follow Jesus. Some of you here today are marginally religious. And so maybe there's been a little cost to following Jesus. Others of you in this room are committed Christians and there probably has been major uh, cost for you to follow Jesus. Still others of you in this room this morning are probably disenchanted with all religion but at least you're here maybe because you're curious about Jesus. Regardless of why you're here and where you are, I want to ask you this morning to to make a small decision, maybe not a huge decision. And that decision would be that I'd like to ask you to decide about is just to pursue Jesus, just to be interested in Jesus, to be curious about him, to maybe give him a chance. Because what I'm going to argue is that everything in your life rises and falls upon what you decide about who Jesus is. Either he's the Lamb of God or he isn't. Are you willing to pursue Jesus in order to find out if he is who he claims to be, even if it costs you? Let's go back to this passage, verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? What do you want? And so the third point is that often our new life with God begins with a question. What do you want? I mean, honestly, it's a great question. John the Baptist had clearly been pushing Andrew and John towards Jesus, and they finally kind of got his point. And so you can just sort of picture the scene. You can imagine them awkwardly following Jesus at a distance. And when Jesus turns around and sees them, he asks them a question. What do you want? And so either Jesus is impatient and kind of bothered by them and essentially sort of says, what do you guys want? He's irritated with them. Or (laughs) Jesus asks the question to get to something deeper. And of course, I would argue that Jesus never asks a question without actually trying to take us somewhere. 
here, he's trying to get Andrew and John to search within themselves to find out what exactly it is that they do want from him. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, everyone wanted something from Jesus. Everyone wanted him on their team. And so what you can see is that the Pharisees, when he comes on the scene, they want Jesus to be on their team. Then the Sadducees, they want Jesus to be on their team. Then the Herodians, they want Jesus. Then the Zealots. And one by one, each of those groups turned their backs on Jesus because what they wanted wasn't what he was offering, right? Does that make sense? And so Jesus begins this question to these two disciples by really driving to the heart of the matter and saying, what do you want? What do you want? Some of you guys are familiar with the musical group Simon and Garfunkel. They're a little bit older even than the movie clip I just (laughs) showed, but you'd be familiar with some of their music. Uh, Paul Simon uh, is maybe the most uh, famous member of the duo. And uh, he's, uh, he's, you know, actually Jewish in terms of ethnicity, but, but an atheist who happens to be curious about religion. And in 2004, he read an article written by a man named David Brooks. David Brooks, of course, writes for the New York Times. And uh, in that article, um, David Brooks had interviewed John Stott. And so John Stott was a very popular theologian who passed away in 2011. I think we have a picture of him up here in a second. And uh, after reading this article, um, Paul Simon was like, I wanna talk to that guy. I'm, I'm really interested, I'm curious in, about him. And so David Brooks introduced the two of them. And so Paul Simon called up John Stott and was like, hey, can we go to lunch somewhere? And John, John Stott, who at the time was uh, getting on up there in age, said, you know, I don't really go out much anymore. I'm, I'm really too weak, but I'd love to have you come to my little apartment and I can have somebody bring lunch in and we can talk. And so Paul Simon was like, that's great. So Paul Simon said he showed up at John Stott's apartment. And he said it was a really small apartment, just a little two-bedroom place. And, uh, and Paul Simon said, in the midst of that conversation, what I wanted to talk about was sort of all these crazy Christians and all these hyper-conservatives and all these nuts. And he sort of you know, was speaking from his point of view and he was criticizing you know, political movements that Christians were involved in. And he said that John Stott, in sort of this massively polite and endearing kind of way, just paused and asked him a question. And he said, well, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus, right? And so I think that's the question for us this morning. I think it's the question for you. Why are you here this morning? What do you want from Jesus? This morning, several hundred people are sitting in this room and each of you is here for some reason, I would guess that many of us are here for what at least on the surface appear to be good reasons. I want my kids to grow up in the church. I want them to have good moral friends. Some of you are here because you don't wanna go to hell. Some of you are here today because you want companionship and you want friendship. Some of you want God to empower you to overcome some addiction or some area of weakness in your life. But the question that Jesus asks John and Andrew and you is what do you want from him? What do you want from Jesus? Let's jump back in to verse 38. Verse 38 says, they said, that is John and Andrew, Andrew and John, they said, rabbi, which means teacher. And I would also argue that the fact that they call him rabbi means that they don't really know who he is yet. Uh, They just think he's another teacher. And so their response is, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so part of what we see in this passage is that often our new life with God begins with a new perspective, a new way of seeing things. I actually really love this section in the narrative. Jesus asks them what they want and they freeze, right? They go, uh, 
because it's clear that they're like, I don't know. We don't know what we want. And so they can't or they don't answer, and they awkwardly respond by asking Jesus, uh, where are you staying, right? It's just the first thing that they could kind of you know, think of. And he says, come and you will see. Now, Jesus here isn't talking about Andrew and John seeing where he is staying. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, I will give you the ability to truly see. Often, Jesus uses a rhetorical device of talking about something that seems mundane on the surface, but is really about something supernatural. With Nicodemus in John chapter three, Jesus talks about spiritual birth, but Nicodemus thinks he's talking about physical birth. With the woman at the well in John chapter four, Jesus is talking about her spiritual thirst, but she thinks or assumes he's talking about her physical thirst. In John chapter six, the crowds asked for physical bread, but Jesus was intent on giving them himself, the living bread, spiritual bread that satisfies. It happened again in John chapter nine, where Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And all the Pharisees could focus on was the fact that this man's physical sight had been restored on the Sabbath. They were concerned with physical sight, but Jesus was concerned with spiritually being able to see. And after the Pharisees repeatedly interrogated the man who had been born blind and even kicked him out of the synagogue when he refused to denounce Jesus, Jesus found the man who had been born blind. And what we read in verse 35 is uh, this account of Jesus' interaction with this man. So I'll begin reading in verse 35. It should be in the PowerPoint as well. Jesus heard that they had put him out. In other words, Jesus heard that the Pharisees had kicked this man born blind out of the synagogue. You're not allowed to come in here anymore, right? Because, they, because he refused to denounce Jesus. And so when Jesus heard they'd put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And then of course the man said, who is he Lord that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he, that is this man born blind said, Lord, I believe, and listen to this last sentence, and he worshiped him, right? What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe that he is? Is he a great moral teacher, a rabbi, maybe like Gandhi or like John Stott, who deserves to be listened to, to pay to, you know, we should pay attention to him, or is Jesus the Lamb of God who deserves to be worshiped? Your answer to that question will make all the difference in the world. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you that through your son Jesus, you invite us um, to embark upon a new life where we see you for who you really are, um, where we see your son Jesus for who he really is. And Father, we see ourselves as people who need a lamb of God. And so, Father, I pray that uh, we would embark upon this new life with you and that you would enable us to see. I pray that you would enable us to make a decision to follow you, Father. I pray, Father, that you would even enable us um, to address the deep questions of our hearts uh, and that we might turn to you for the answer to those questions. And Father, I pray that you would do all of this um, not only for your glory, uh, but also for our good, Father. That as we trust in you as our good Father and your son, Jesus, 
uh, as our loving Savior, Father, that you would restore us and that you would redeem us and that you would make us uh, fully human. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.